Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. As artificial intelligence continues to develop, many workers fear the disruptive potential of a fast-changing job market. How will AI affect the economy, and how can workers prepare for the future? Today, my AI colleague Brent Durrell joins Political Economy to answer those questions and more. Brent is a senior fellow here at AI, where he works on job training and workforce development. He's also host of the Hardly Working Podcast. Brent, welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Back in 2021, you gave some congressional testimony. Let me just read uh, a oh, sentence. No. Oh, no. You're going to quote me back to myself. Okay. Go oh, ahead. yeah. I love doing it. Love it. Uh, here we go. In light of an increasingly automated economy, the solution is not to attempt to constrain technological change or alter its course, but rather to build up the capacities of our workforce in both technical and non-cognitive domains while technological change continues to run its course. Over the past couple of months, we've had a, a, a new technology emerged called generative AI. AI can predict and answer questions, uh, seem to make connections, create interesting art. And I think people are now wondering if we have reached a point where all that stuff, technical and non-cognitive domains, improving that, and I'll have you explain that stuff in a minute, whether we might be moving past that, whether AI is about to to, to take off. Um, I, I sense some concern out there, I guess is my question. Do you sense concern? Um, you know, I think that uh, technological breakthroughs always generate concern. Uh, they, you know, uh, we've been living through these episodes of turbulence in the economy driven by automation, driven by new technologies, you know, for centuries now. And, and uh, as you're well aware, Jim, I mean, the, the story that we tell ourselves every time this happens is that work is coming to an end. Uh, you know, the robots are going to replace us. We're, there's not going to be any work. And of course, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that that's the case from the historical record. Um, machines, uh, whether they are uh, steam engines or transistors, have a tendency to expand the reach of human work. Um, and I, I have no reason to think that this chapter is going to be different than any of those other chapters. In fact, I think the primary thing that we need to be worried about right now in terms of the workforce is that we're not going to have enough people. Um, as, you know, as the population ages, um, 1960, the average age in this country was 20, and now it's 38. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as the population ages, we have fewer new workers coming in line. We're going to have to figure out how to get more out of our existing human capital so I just don't see it. Uh, and, I, and I think even at this early stage with AI, you can already see, at least I can see it in my own work, it's not taking work away. It's adding work. Um, it is and it adding in more than one sense, not just the quantity, but the, the capacity 
to do even more work. And I think that that's really the pattern that we're going to be looking at. Uh, I think people and people are susceptible to the X technology will take all the jobs uh, argument. One, because it's easier to imagine a job being automated than to imagine the productivity benefit, uh, helping you with a new task or creating those new jobs. But the part of that uh, uh, that sentence I read, we talk about building up the capacities of our workforce. I think people just aren't confident that we know how to do that. Yes, we know how to educate high schoolers. We know how to send people to college. But you know, I, I, think I don't that, think there's a lot of confidence that if you have a job, yeah, and and it has to radically change, or you have to get a new job, that we know how to train those people at all. Yeah. So this is this is what it comes down to for me. I think that the most important skill there there are two important. I should say there are two important skill sets as we move forward, and I think these have been the key uh, skill sets for quite a while now. Uh, one is to develop the capacity to be flexible and to learn. Uh, and um, that is probably, in my view, the most important skill moving forward is this capacity to learn and to flex and adapt with new technology. That, and I, I don't undersell that. Uh, I think that that, is, that would be more than enough if that's all that we had to do was to build a workforce that had the capacity to take on to new technology and adapt to it and remain sort of cognitively flexible in the face of all of this change. I think that's a, it's the most important challenge. I think it's the biggest challenge, and I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do, but that is the, the most important skill. The second is related to the first, which is new workers coming in to the workforce need to have a, a very fluid relationship with technology. Um, they need that, um, uh, you know, they're, as, they, as they enter the stream of work, they need to make sure that they've got, regardless of what their sort of formal training is in, it could be psychology, it could be philosophy, it could be medicine, it doesn't matter. Uh, but what they need is uh, a real um, affluency with um, uh, technology so that they are comfortable, they understand the underlying operating principles of uh, generative AI and all the other new technologies that are coming online. Um, and so if you if you have those two things, you're going to be fine. If you enter the workforce with the expectation that the job that you're doing now, whatever your job is, is not going to change, then I think uh, you are you are um, you're really hampering yourself for the future. Your job is going to change. It's not going to go away. Uh, for most people, anyway, it's not going to go away, but it is going to change. You're going to have to learn how to new, do new stuff uh, and um, and use all of these great new tools. And they are fantastic tools um, uh, that uh, I've had the opportunity to get an early account on the new Bing chat. And I'm telling you, it is such a time saver. It is unbelievable how much it can speed up your work um, if you're working in the knowledge economy. And I, I, that's that's a lot of the workforce right there, people who have those knowledge components to their jobs. This generative AI is going to make things a lot faster and a lot easier. Sort of getting back to the, uh, you know, what, you know, what people need to do to sort of survive and thrive. Right. 
the technical part people can understand. Like, okay, I'm going to have to, I might have to take a class. I'll have to learn. I certainly have to be open-minded. Uh, but the sort of the non-cognitive skills that you write a lot about, how, why, why will those be important? I'd almost think they'll be less important because you're dealing with technology more that, you know, all these other sort of what they, I'll let you explain what non-cognitive skills are. They've why would they be so important in this new sort of more technologically driven environment? Yeah, it's it's a paradox uh, that you've that you've put your finger on. As technology increases its presence and takes over more of the repetitive uh, kind of mundane tasks of work, the premium shifts up on uh, these non cognitive skills, which are. You know, just to simplify this, we'll just talk about them in terms of interpersonal skills. Um, uh, there are some things that AI can do very, very well, and that domain actually is going to grow over time. Anytime anybody says to you, AI can't do the X, fill in the blank, you always need to put a footnote there and say yet um, behind that because the technology will continue to surprise us in terms of its capacity. But at the moment, and and this has really been true since the 80s, um, the premium on these non-cognitive skills has been going up. Um, and if you ask employers uh, what's missing in the workforce, it's things like communication, teamwork, management, critical thinking. Uh, a, a lot of it is in this domain of how people relate to one another. Um, those kinds of skills are as much in demand as the technical skills that we, that we spend most of our time and effort trying to train people for. And technical skills are those skills which are, you know, like I, I know that when I pick up a screwdriver that I turn it right to tighten and left to loosen. I mean, that's a very simplified version of this, but, but the, those things can be broken down into curricula and trained in a classroom. Uh, non-cognitive skills are much more like the things that we absorb out of the social environment as we move around doing the stuff that we need to do in life. Uh, and it is, um, you know, it starts when we're very young in infancy and it develops very slowly and very gradually. And what that tells us is that if we're interested in, in increasing the supply of non-cognitive skills, we really need to focus on uh early childhood, childhood, and adolescence um, to help people uh, get those skills. Now, how, what does that mean? Well, family formation is extremely important in this. Um, we, we've got a problem in our society with uh, too many kids being raised in single-parent families. I'm not here to trash or get down on single-parent families. I love them. I think they are heroic in many ways because I've got three kids and I know I couldn't have done that by myself uh, in raising them. So I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that all things being equal, kids in two parent families do better than kids in one parent families. And one of the ways that they do better is in the development of this non-cognitive skill base. So that's, if, if I could wave a wand over one social problem, that's it. That would probably take care of, uh, you know, a, a a very good sized chunk of uh, the challenge that we're facing on the workforce side. But if you have uh, you know, 20 year olds entering, entering the workforce who don't have those yeah. skills, 
Is it? It's sort of too late. You've missed. No. <laughs> you've missed. You've missed your opportunity. No, I mean, I think that uh, human beings are amazingly flexible in their ability to um, learn uh, even those kinds of skills. But we, and, and I will say that what I'm hearing uh, in, from both people in universities and people dealing with uh, uh, HR questions with younger workers right now is that even kids that have a lot of those early advantages are struggling right now. New workers because of the pandemic. Um, there have been short-term hits to um, uh, the capacity of younger workers that have to be, uh, have to be worked on. Uh, and a lot of explaining needs to be done uh, about appropriate workplace behaviors. We also have really great programs in, uh, for um, disadvantaged populations called sectoral-based training programs, which really try to combine technical skill training with non-cognitive skill training. And honestly, I mean, we, we just finished a review of all the evidence around uh, many of the workforce programs that we have in this country. These sectoral programs are the only ones that we can point to that really yield uh, large sustained gains in income uh, for people. And it's, in my view, it's because they are addressing the entire person rather than treating people as if, if I just give them a technical skill, they'll be fine. Uh, so those skills can be learned. We have programs that can, um, or educational approaches that, that can help to teach them. It's not a, a, a career death sentence um, if you've got that kind of a deficit, but you need to be attentive to it and you need to, every, everybody needs to be attentive to their own development on this and and really find uh, the ways to increase their capacity. Do we have the worker a worker retraining system in this country that works as it should? And uh, it, if we don't, do we know how to create one? Uh, we don't. Uh, we don't know how to create it. We have some glimmers of pieces of ideas that seem to be very very helpful. Uh, 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 the sectoral training strategy strategies are one of those. Um, I think we need to do, be doing a lot better at every level on career guidance and development um, because it's such a smorgasbord out there. Uh, uh, parents and kids are all struggling with trying to make sense out of the educational options that are available to them. Um, at Northern Virginia Community College uh, here, it's one of the largest in the country, um, they have one guidance counselor for every thousand students. That's that's not good enough. In fact, that may be worse than trying to, than doing nothing. Um, we really have to we have to beef up that that side of what we do, which again addresses this non cognitive. It's really addressing this non cognitive de deficit um, that we've been talking about, uh, and I think that needs to happen across uh, across our educational and training systems. The other thing I would say is that employers need to get into the game as well. Um, employers, because of this demographic squeeze that we're in, employers need to figure out how, can, how they can make more out of their existing workforce. And we, we saw some of this during the pandemic and in the recovery from the pandemic, where there was a distinct pattern of people being pulled up within businesses as businesses couldn't find the, the, the easy thing is to reach into the labor market and try to find that, that unicorn that you're looking for. And uh, there seems to be some evidence to suggest that employers were doing more of the internal development 
uh, of their workforces that needs to be done. And so the the traditional story is that there's a real incentive, uh, or rather disincentive, for for companies to do that because what you're doing is you're you know sort of training your employee for their their next job somewhere else. You're making them more valuable, and then they'll leave. But uh, if you're I mean, if you can't find workers, right. then you really have no choice. Perhaps this tight market has accomplished what you know, maybe years of policy or hopes have not. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, I you know, the, the reason that employers have done that in the past is because it's the fast solution, even though it's actually a very expensive way to uh, acquire human capital. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, the, co- the the amount of money that we spend on recruitment is a lot more than we spend on uh, development of um, of the existing workforce. So yeah, I think a tighter labor market um, makes people start to think about what their what their options are and makes employers think about what their options are rather than just hiring to try to solve the problem. Do we need a different workplace environment for the 2023 worker? Uh, than the kind of environment do they do workers need to be treated differently in some fashion, not just you know they not just you know being allowed to work a hybrid schedule, but is there something in the actual you know relationship between employer employee that 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 needs to change for sort of the modern younger worker? You know, it's interesting when you ask. Uh, we did some survey work on this. When you ask younger workers, what is it that they want out of uh, their jobs. Obviously, you know, everybody wants to get paid that, uh, and that's a, a very high uh, value. But beneath that, for younger workers, flexibility was the, the next thing. And it was pretty close, actually, to salary, is that younger workers uh, report a need for flexibility. That does not mean they want remote work. In fact, they don't value remote work. They don't value value flexible schedules. Typically, they want to be in offices where they can learn. Um, and so, what do they mean by flexibility? And I think one of the things they mean is um, that that their employer will work with them as they try to figure out what this working environment means for them. Many, I mean, I think people our age, Jim, we we. Uh, we had jobs. I had my first job at 13, 14, caddying on a golf course, uh, uh, working in pizza parlors, working on a farm. You know, I did all sorts of stuff. Um, and so I had a sense of the norms of work before I actually got my first real job. And that's not the case anymore. Um, uh, fewer and fewer kids have that experience of the, those early jobs. And so there's a lot of, there's a, there's a big information gap. So I think what younger workers are saying is that they, they need some help figuring out this transition. Uh, the other thing is that values have shifted. Um, you know, uh, people have different expectations. Younger workers have different expectations about what they want out of a job. I think to keep them, employers are going to have to be attentive to that or just, you know, in a tight labor market, you know, just budget for a lot of turnover if you aren't going to try to accommodate uh, those values around, you know, I got a lot going on in my life. I don't want, you know, to be, I don't want to check my email over the weekend, you know, I, those kinds of, um, those kinds of things. So we, we're definitely, uh, we're definitely in a transition there as well. 
Um, do we need to do a lot different in the, over the next 10 to 20 years if if machine learning, you know, the, the kind of AI that uh, usually when we talk about AI, that's what we're talking about, we're talking about machine learning. If that becomes more prevalent, more important, diffuses throughout the economy, you know, beyond technology companies and all manners, uh, all, all sectors, are we are we basically doing what we need to do to prepare people to be in that kind of uh, work environment? Uh, or is there a lot we need to do different? Um, again, I mean, I would just go back to, uh, this need, um, to prepare people mentally, psychologically, emotionally for, um, a really, uh, you know, profound shift that's going to go on in terms of, of work and jobs and skills, um, and the need to be, you know, remain flexible, remain adaptable to the changes in technology, how we go about doing that, um, I think is, uh, you know, very important, um, that people sort of accept the fact that there's no silver bullet preparation, um, that's going to make, uh, everything okay for the rest of your life. Um, we, we see this in the numbers that parents, about 90% of parents say they want their kids to major in engineering. Uh, I, you know, let, let's be real. Let's be realistic here. Yeah. Engineering is a difficult job, uh, and it requires, uh, a, a, you know, it, it skews up the intelligence curve pretty high. And so um, what, what I take out of that number is that people are very anxious about the economic futures of their children, and they want... They want the quick, easy answer. Well, if I just get you into a STEM degree, uh, everything's going to be fine. And I think that if you went and talked to some of the um, computer scientists right now who have been laid off in fairly large numbers um, in uh, in Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the country, um, there's a you probably find some disappointment there, you know, that I was promised that if I did this, that I would be set. And now I'm back into the, into the job market. So I think that one of the ways that we can help people prepare is to start asking a different kind of question, which is not first um, sort of, how am I going to support myself? You know, we want it, we want this to make the immediate leap to the economic outcome. And I think that rather than doing that, we should, we should be, asking a different set of questions about what are you really gifted and skilled for? What do you like? What are your durable interests? Um, so that you can capitalize on those. Um, this is what I, you know, just, I just call this, you know, having an entrepreneurial mindset, even if you aren't an entrepreneur, strictly speaking, right. Um, but having an entrepreneurial mindset about your own life, how, what are your skills? What are your interests? What are your abilities? And then ask, how do I align that to the market? Um, and as I said, we typically do this the other way, which is what does the market need? And then how do I prepare myself to get there? Uh, and I, you always have to have that market conversation, but the first thing you need to do is understand yourself. Brent, that's awesome stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. That, thanks for having me.